Hear the word of the Lord from Numbers 6, 22 through 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, man, I thank, thank you, Joel and worship team, for leading us so well this morning. That was a blessing to me, but I don't know what happens. Now, listen, I'm just, I, don't, I don't want to speak a bad word about you guys, but typically the first service is a little sleepy. It's a little sleepy. Uh, but this morning, what in the world? <laughs> like, I could hear voices behind me louder than that speaker in front of me, and that was awesome. That's what it's all about. Uh, we love, uh, God loves to hear his people sing, and I, as a pastor, love to hear God's people sing. So thank you for belting it. And the louder you sing, the less I hear my own vo voice. So it's actually, there's a lot of blessings in that. So, well, good morning and welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. If you're just joining us, uh, we have been studying the aspects of our Sunday morning liturgy in detail over these last few weeks. Now, if you don't know what that word liturgy means, liturgy is the order of our service. The word worship literally means service, and there's a, there's a style to worship. There's an order to service, and that's called a liturgy. Now, we have structured our liturgy the way that we have for two main reasons. One, we believe that God wants to be worshiped in a certain way. And so if we're going to glorify him, we must shape our worship around what he has told us to do in his word. This has been called the regulative principle. The word of God regulates how we are to worship God. We do what the word tells us to do when we come together and we don't do what we want to do. Right? And secondly, our Sunday worship is also a formative practice. It's meant to follow a certain shape and rhythm in order to form us into a certain shape or identity. Baseball practice is meant to form you into a better ball player. School is meant to form you into a better learner. In the same way, our Sunday worship is meant to form you into more Christ-like citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, you do not have to know what is going on in order to be shaped by it, right? If you go to practice and you do the sprints, you're still going to get in better shape, even if you don't know why you're doing them. But if you do them knowing why you're doing them to be in better shape to, you know, in the ninth inning when you need to have that energy and you need to sprint and you need to catch the ball and you need to do the things. And if you're going to win the championship, you got to be in better shape. It's going to make the sprints not any more enjoyable, but it's actually going to help you understand why you're doing it, right? You're going to put in your mind that championship or that ninth inning or that 12th inning, right? And you're, I, this, I'm going to need that energy there. So I'm going to put in the work today. In the same way, what we do on Sunday morning shapes us whether we understand what we're doing or not. It shapes us in a certain way. 
This is one reason we're told not to neglect gathering together each week as the church, even as we see the day approaching, he says, or even as we continue to move forward in time, it's going to be more and more and more important to gather together each week. However, if you do understand why you're doing what you're doing, it will help you engage more thoroughly and thoughtfully, and that will make the Sunday morning worship more meaningful to you each week. Now listen, to push this analogy just a little bit further, can you imagine what would happen if a baseball player consistently missed parts of practice? <laughs> yes. Maybe they were always late and they missed the warm-ups or they left a little bit early each day and they missed the conditioning, right? They would not be a well-rounded ball player. This is why it's important that you do not miss out on any of the aspects on the Sunday gathering, right? It's important that you don't let your kids stay out in the foyer late before they come in or you let your kids leave during the service and then come back in. You don't want them to miss on a certain aspect of our service. All of the aspects are meant to shape us in a certain way. And if you, I hate to, I'm going to pick on you just for a second. If you always show up 20 minutes late, you miss some good stuff. Yeah. Who shows up? 20 minutes late to a movie. Are you, are you that kind of person? I just don't need the introduction. That's probably meaningless anyways. It's all only matters how it ends. Or who would leave 20 minutes before the movie's over, right? No, you're gonna miss meaningful things. Same thing. If you're always late, you're gonna miss out on the pastoral welcome. You're gonna miss out maybe even on the confession. Maybe that's why you do it. Uh, <laughs> right? The whole service is important for us to be shaped in a gospel-centered way. Every aspect of our service is meant to shape you into a Christ-like citizen of the kingdom of Jesus. Now, this week, we are finishing up this series by looking at the benediction. Okay, the benediction is the last thing we do together in our service. The liturgy reader speaks it over us each week and usually finishes with something like, Peace to you. And then we respond to him and also to you or also with you. Well, what's going on in the benediction? The benediction is the culmination of everything we've done together on a Sunday morning. And it's also the meaning of your whole life. One scholar said, when you hear the benediction each week, your whole life should flash before your eyes. The benediction is a great blessing that is spoken over you. That is meant to send you back out into the world with everything you need for whatever circumstances that God has providentially ordered for you that coming week. Now, I'm going to break that down a bit, but before I do, let's pray and ask God's blessing on us as we study his word together this morning. Father, we lack wisdom, we lack knowledge, we lack, lack foresight, we lack, we lack strength, we lack motivation, we lack so many things, but you lack nothing. And you told us to come to you when we're needy and that you would give us everything that we need for life and godliness. And so that's what we do this morning. And Father, I thank you for giving us your word, that your word is meant to straighten us out. Your word is meant to direct us and to lead us and to teach us how to live and empower us for that living. And so I pray this morning that you would think 
through my mind, that you would speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you and none of me, that your voice would come through me to your people and uh, your word would produce fruit in their life like you promised to do. Let your sheep hear your voice and give us exactly what we need this day. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen. All right, so I want to answer three questions this morning. Number one, what is the benediction? Number two, why we need it so bad? And number three, how can we get it? Or how does it come to us? Number one, just what is the benediction? Well, the word benediction is Latin for good word. Okay, bene means good, diction means word. So the benediction is the speaking of a good word over God's people that is meant to confer to them some tangible benefit. All right, in other words, the benediction is a spoken blessing. Now, what does it mean to speak a blessing over someone? Well, in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning of the Bible, we see that after God creates things, he sees that they are good, and then he blesses them. So God speaks, he sees that they are good, and then he puts his stamp of approval on it, and he blesses them. He blesses the animals and tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He blesses the seventh day and calls it holy. And of course, he blesses human beings And this is what God's word says about that blessing over human beings. Quote, Genesis 1, 27 to 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We see a few things here about the blessing of God. First and foremost, the blessing of God is his approval. He's saying, you are good. I am pleased with you. You are mine. You are made in my image to do what I have created you to do. So first and foremost, the blessing is God's giving of approval to people made in his image. But it's more than that. It's also a promise to give us what we need to do what God has called us to do. What has he called us to do? Right there in that text we see, be fruitful And multiply. That means we are to love and marry someone of the opposite sex and have children. What else are we to do? Subdue the earth by exercising our dominion. That means to cultivate the earth. That we are to take the resources that God has given us and use them to build a God-honoring culture. A God-centered culture. We're to build families 
to worship God. We're to build businesses in the ways that honor God. We're to build churches that would put God at the center. We're to build societies that would put God at the center. We're to build instruments to sing worship to God. We're to build schools to teach people how to love God with all their mind. We're to make music, art, and movies all to honor the gloriousness and the greatness of our creator God. And God promises to bless us to do this, to give us everything we need to accomplish that amazing mission. So what we see is that God's blessing is at least two things. First, it's his declaration of his approval over us. You're good. And secondly, it's his promise to provide for us, to enable us to do what he's called us to do. And this Concept of blessing, it's not something that's just like tertiary in the Bible. 87 times in the book of Genesis, God blesses. Over 400 and, no, over 540 times throughout the Bible, God blesses. So blessing is something that God does because he is so blessed, he is so good, his goodness overflows with blessing. But it's also something that God tells his people to do as well. Let's take a look at our main text this morning. Numbers chapter 6 verses 22 through 27. It says this, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, okay, the priests at that time, saying, Thus you shall bless the people Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Now this is important. That is a very famous passage of scripture. It's called the blessing of Aaron. It, it was what was spoken over God's people at the end of the tabernacle service. So it was the benediction at the end of their worship service. And again, you see these two main aspects of God's blessing. You see his favor and you see his promise of provision. Right? He says, here's his favor. The Lord bless you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Those are all meant to convey God's favor. That God's looking at you. That God sees you. That God's pleased with you. Right? That he loves us. That he's given us his approval as his children. As his people. But then we see the Lord keep you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord give you peace. And our, those are all promises to give us what we need, right? Grace, right? We need grace and we need to be kept, right? And we need peace. Those are all promises to be with us and provide for us everything we need for life and godliness. So the benediction is the last thing we hear on Sunday morning in our worship. It is God speaking through the liturgy reader, telling us that he loves us, telling us that he approves of us, and telling us that he promises to bless us and be with us as we leave this gathering and go out in our mission field to do what he's called us to do. 
And did you know this? Did you know the last thing Jesus did on this earth before being carried up into heaven was bless his disciples with a benediction? Luke 24, 50 says it like this. This is post-resurrection. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Now this is why often our liturgy readers lift up their hands in the blessing. This is how Jesus did it. He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him. What was their response? They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. See, Jesus blessed them with a benediction. And guess what? That benediction worked. That benediction did something. They left with some pep in their step. They left knowing that they had the favor of God upon them and God had given them everything they need for life and godliness. And what was their response? They blessed God. They worshiped God. They went to the temple and worshiped God together. So that's what the benediction is. It's a blessing of favor and a promise of provision. The next question I'd like to answer is, why do we need that blessing so bad? Look at verse 27 of our text again with me this morning. It says this, by doing the benediction, by pronouncing this blessing over God's people, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. God says when the benediction is spoken over his people, it is a naming ceremony. We are placing God's name on his people. Now what exactly does that mean and why would that be important? Well, it's not just important, it's vital. This is getting to the very essence and core of who you are and what you need in life. It's pointing to a reality that if you don't come to grips with, your life will be plagued with all kinds of problems. Let me point out a couple things on this issue of names. First, what do we mean when we say things like, man, he's really making a name for himself in the company? Or she's really making her name for herself on the basketball court. Or when we tell our sons and daughters, I want you to go out into the world and make a name for yourself. We're pointing to a universal reality for the human being. There's something about us that need to be recognized. To be seen as competent, successful, beautiful, or good. And we want to build a great name for ourselves. We want people to hear our name and equate it with successful or beautiful or competent or good. However, the universal human condition because of sin, a great problem arises when that desire, that desire for recognition, that is desire for a great name, isn't met by God himself. 
See, if it's not met by God himself, here's, the, here's me say it like this. That desire is God-sized. N- nothing but the name of God can satisfy that. Your name can't be big enough in enough lights to satisfy the unquenching desire you have to be recognized by other people. This is why all of our modern day little G gods and goddesses are horribly broken, desperate people. Absolute thirst traps, all of them. Can't stop posting. Can't stop. Need to show a little more. Need to show a little more. I'm out of the limelight for a second and I need to push myself in it. Why? They need a name bigger than their own name. See, if it's not met by God, that name, that desire for a great name will become an unrelenting desire that is never fulfilled. You will never be good enough. You will never be successful enough. You will never be beautiful enough. And if you are beautiful enough, oh, hold on to that. Take a picture of that because it's going. So you will always be driven and you will never know peace. The other side of that same reality is that our failures also try to name us. If you're out there building a name for yourself, then what you build determines your name. Many of us have already made a name for ourselves, and the name in reality is failure, fraud, lazy, foolish, addict, broken. I could go on and on. What has tried to name you? So in the benediction, God is saying over his people, you aren't named by your successes or your failures. You are named by me. You have my name on you. You are in my family. Remember who you are and who you represent as you leave this room. Another thing about names, imagine this scenario. You're called to build a five-star hotel here in the Quad Cities. That's your vision. That's the purpose of your life. How would you make that dream a reality? I imagine for most of us, that vision would crush us. Where in the world would I even start? (laughs) Where would the money come from? Where would the knowledge and the know-how, right? The technical ability, where would that come from? Okay, if I could build it, how would I manage it? How would I run it? What, that's an insurmountable task, right? Now I want you to think about that same vision, that same purpose, but I want you to change one detail. Now, in that story, your last name is Hyatt or Hilton or Trump. That one detail changes everything, doesn't it? Why? Because in that last name is everything you need to build a five-star hotel, right? You've got the favor of your family, right? You've got the resources, right? You've got the technical know-how. A name changes everything. 
Think of it like this. God has called us to build families, to make disciples, to plant churches, and to renew our city for the glory of God. This is far more difficult than building a five-star hotel. In order for God's vision for our cities to be accomplished, people have to be saved. They have to come, go from spiritual death to spiritual life. They have to be converted. Those people then have to be waking up, woken up in such a way that they're not just, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ, but they actually become disciples, followers of Jesus who go out and make more disciples. Those disciples actually have to step up into some kind of leadership role and start leading missional communities and multiplying missional communities. And we have to then raise up church planters and plant new churches. And the values of the gospel need to be pushed down into every crack and crevice of our city. Now listen, God has called us to nothing less than that. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord is to cover the face of our city like the waters cover the sea. Now listen, that is an impossible task in our own name. But in the benediction, God once again puts his name on us. He says, go out and accomplish my mission in my power. Accomplish my mission in my world with my name on you, with my resources. Listen, yes, there is power in the name of Hyatt or Hilton or Trump, but there's infinitely more power in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So why do we need the benediction in life so bad? Because we need to be named. We need the security that the name of Jesus offers us. That we can't do good enough to earn his name and we can't do enough bad to lose his name. We need the favor, the resources, and the know-how to build families that honor God, to build disciples and plant churches and renew our city for the glory of God. So the thing we most need is really given to us week in and week out in the benediction. The last thing I want to answer is this. How does the benediction come to us? How do we get the blessing? To answer that question, I want to turn to another benediction. This benediction is in the New Testament from the book of Hebrews Chapter 13. Here's the benediction the author of Hebrews wrote to God's people. <clears throat> this is how he finishes his letter. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now listen, everything you need to know is right there. Do you see it? How do you get the blessing? How does the good word, benediction, how does the good word come to you? 
Three simple words. There's a lot of stuff there. It's really good. I, I would like to preach that whole passage, but I can't. Three simple words that we need to see there. Through Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus himself is the benediction. He is the good word. What do I mean by that? All right. In order to explain this, first, I have to terrify you. Will you permit me that for just a little bit? We're really close to Halloween. We should be in the spirit, right? Here's, here's the malediction. Here's the bad word that must precede the good word. We all feel like we have to go out there and make a name for ourselves. We all feel like someone is watching us and someone is keeping score. And we feel like that for a reason. It's true. But it's way more terrifying than that. God not only is watching and has seen everything you have ever done, He's also listening. He's heard every word you've ever spoken. He's also reading. He's read every thought you've ever had. He has felt every desire that has coursed through your veins. What this means, and it is the most terrifying reality in all the universe. Dying and then going to be worm food is not terrifying. What's terrifying is being absolutely seen and known by a holy God that we stand totally bare and naked before him. That is the most terrifying thought in all of human existence. Now why, why should that terrify us? Well listen, if your God takes the similar shape of Santa Claus, it wouldn't terrify anyone. Santa! Come sit on my lap. What do you want, little boy or little girl? Have you been a good boy or girl? Doesn't really matter. I'm going to give you stuff anyways. No, it terrifies us because God in his word has not only promised to bless those who obey him, he's also promised to curse those who disobey him. Those who disobey God are breaking God's world. They're ruining his stuff. They're working evil. They're spreading darkness. And God who has who is light has no fellowship with darkness. So this is the terrifying reality. Who can stand before the face of a holy God and not be destroyed? And most of us would actually be cheering that on because we hate evil and we hate darkness and we say to God, God, destroy evil. God, destroy darkness. And he says, okay, I will start with you. Who could say that darkness doesn't remain? It's 
See, the answer is who can stand before the face of a holy God? No one. None of us. We've made a name for ourselves, and the name is sinner. Now, I, don't, I know we don't like that word sinner. There's an English author, intellectual, wrote a book called Unapologetic. And he, he, was, trying, he was an atheist, and he, he, he got converted late in his life. And he's like, the greatest problem in our society right now is nobody actually believes they're a sinner. Um, that word is watered down, and it's like a naughty word, like, oh, yeah, those chocolates, they're just sinful, right? And he's like, and he's like no, you know what? And I, this is, kids, I, you probably don't repeat what I'm saying, but I have to make this point. He, he says this, sin is the human propensity to F things up, to break things. Break promises, break relationships, break people, to break stuff. Put a person alone with a shiny car that's not their own. Oh, first they're going to, oh, wow, wow, wow. And then something's going to come over them. There's just this desire to, to just run a key down it. So there's something in, St. Augustine knew this. St. Augustine, when he was looking in his soul and he wrote his confessions, he was looking at how his life took the shape of his sexuality and how he sinned in so many different ways and he's tracing it back. And he's like, I get my sexuality. I have this desire to, to procreate. The God gave us this good desire and it kind of got turned. But he remembered back to this time when he was in a field and he was a boy and he stole pears. Now, the, the reason this piqued his attention is because he hated pears. And he stole them and just threw them on the ground. He stole them just because there was something in him that wanted to break stuff. Wanted to ruin something. Wanted to smash something beautiful. And that's what sin is. And we've all done that. We've broken God's stuff. We've broken God's people. We've broken God's world. We've brought that evil into his good world. We all stand guilty before him. Now listen, that is the malediction. That's the bad news. That's the bad word. Here's the good word. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. That means he carries the name Son of God uniquely in all of creation. What did he do? What did Jesus, the son of God do, he left heaven to put on flesh and do what we, man alone, was unable to do. See, Jesus is man of man and God of God. He is 100% man and he is 100% God. He, those two personas dwell uniquely in the son of God. Because he's 100% God, he's 100% holy. Because he's 100% man, he is therefore able to represent us. And what did Jesus do? Jesus came and he lived the life that we should have lived. Holy, perfect, didn't break anything, brought healing and redemption. 
He was perfect, sinless, and deserving of all of God's blessing. Think about this. He was uniquely in human history, Jesus was the one who earned the blessing. Earned it. Add a boy, Jesus. Add a boy. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. He earned the naming. He earned it. But what did he get? But because of Jesus' great love for us, he took the malediction that we deserve. He took God's curse for us. The punishment that we deserve was placed on him. And he died in our place for our many sins. <laughs> on the cross, Jesus received the malediction so that we could have his benediction. God cursed Jesus so he could bless us. God crushed Jesus so he could keep us. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus so that his face could shine with favor and pleasure on us. So his face wouldn't terrify us, but would give us peace. Jesus was treated like an enemy so that you could be treated like a son or a daughter of God. All of this, how do I get in on it? How do I get that blessing? There's only one way. Through Jesus Christ. That's it. Do you want in on that blessing? I ask that you'd pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for what you've done for your undeserving people. You are too good. You are so happy. You are so blessed, and out of that abundance, you bless. And we know because of our many sins that we do not deserve your blessing. We deserve your curse. And many of us walk around every day waiting for that other shoe to drop, waiting for that curse to land on us because we know we deserve it. But you've hidden us in your son, Jesus Christ. You've put your name upon us when we put our faith in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You've named us. And so we're not under Adam anymore. We're not just in our trespasses and sins. We are now in Christ. Your name is upon us and the wrath of God has been diverted and can never touch us again. That is the greatest news in the universe. And now, Father, would you bless us once again? Would you remind us once again would you let your face shine upon us in favor once again? Would you give us peace once again? As we come and celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, we come in worship. We come in worshipful 
remembrance. We come knowing that everything we have is a gift of grace and it all comes to us through Jesus Christ. We take the bread that is your body that was broken for us. We take the cup that is the cup of the new covenant, a covenant of grace, the eternal covenant that came to us by the blood of Jesus Christ. We eat it, we drink it in remembrance of you and in worship of you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.